January 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court hands down its decision on Roe v. Wade. Here is how the evening news covered this breaking news, first with Walter Cronkite and CBS, and then Harry Reisner at ABC News. News headquarters in New York. This is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite and Eric Severide in New York, George Herman in Washington, Leslie Stahl in Washington, Fred P. Graham in Atlanta, Peter Kalischer in Paris, Tom Fenton in Paris, Robert Shackney in Des Moines, and tonight, a CBS Evening News special report, The Energy Crisis. Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. Thus, the anti-abortion laws of 46 states were rendered unconstitutional. More on the story from George Herman. In two related cases and eight separate opinions, the nine justices made abortion largely a private matter and ordered the states to make no laws forbidding it, except possibly during the final months. The court split seven to two with Justices Byron White and William Rehnquist dissenting. In effect, the court makes abortion subject only to the decision of the pregnant woman's doctor. It ruled that states may make no laws restricting a doctor's right to decide his patient needs an abortion and to carry out that abortion during the first three months of a pregnancy. After that comparatively safe three-month period, abortions may be regulated but not prohibited by state law and for the benefit of the mother's health alone. Abortion is somewhat more dangerous at this stage and states may insist, for example, that they be performed in regulated hospitals. Only in the final stages of pregnancy may states intervene and say no to abortion. The court's decision, written by Justice Blackmun, thus sets limits on the right to abortion on demand. One limit is the time when doctors believe the fetus may be able to survive outside the mother's womb. At that point, usually in the seventh month of pregnancy, the state may take legal action to protect the unborn child, even forbidding abortion except to protect the mother. The newly liberalized abortion law brought immediate reaction. I think that uh, uh, to uh, raise the dignity of a woman and give her freedom of choice in this area is an extraordinary event. And I think that January 22, 1973 would be an historic day. In this instance, the Supreme Court has withdrawn protection for the human rights of unborn children, and it is teaching people that abortion is a rather innocuous procedure provided that there are proper legal safeguards. I think that the judgment of the court will do a great deal to tear down the respect previously accorded human life in our culture. One of today's plaintiffs was an anonymous former mental patient identified only as Mary Doe, 22 years old. CBS News correspondent Fred Graham talked with her recently. Now, the first two children you'd had, had they been taken away from you? Yes, because I couldn't take care of them by myself, and I couldn't with my husband. And now I believe you had one more, and it was also put out for adoption, wasn't it? Yes, I put it out because of my husband. Now, after you were unable to get the abortion for the fourth pregnancy, what happened? Well, I had to go on and have the baby and have it uh, adopted out. New York State, among others, already have liberalized abortions. Now the rest of the country must follow suit. The White House offered no comment, but President Nixon has always strongly opposed liberalized abortion. 
Other opponents are now talking of a constitutional amendment to reverse today's ruling. Until then, if the experience of New York State is any guide, America will eventually have one abortion for every two births. The Supreme Court today ruled that abortion is completely a private matter to be decided by mother and doctor in the first three months of pregnancy. The 7-2-2 ru ruling to that effect will probably result in a drastic overhaul of state laws on abortion. Specifically, the court today overturned laws in Texas and Georgia and ruled the government has no right to enter into a decision which should be made by the mother and her doctor. During the second three months of pregnancy, it ruled, a state may regulate abortion procedures, but only to ensure the safety of the mother. And in the last three months, whatever state laws say prevails. Laws in 17 states may be affected by that ruling. A separate case in New York involves the question of whether the fetus is alive. Today, the Supreme Court denied a request for a temporary restraining order to stop all abortions in that state, but the court has not decided yet whether to take up that issue. ABC's Lem Tucker has a report. Fordham University law professor Robert Byrne wants to become guardian over all unborn children in New York City so he can put a stop to abortions. To date, three New York courts have refused his request, so he's asking the United States Supreme Court to hear the case. Byrne and the many other members of Right to Life groups say a fetus is alive, that it's a human being under the Constitution. Therefore, abortion, they say, is murder. Byrne declined to be interviewed, but an associate of his said the basic issue of the court case is this. Once you allow the taking of innocent human life at the earliest stages of its development, merely to suit someone's convenience, how do you protect that human life at any other point? More than 450,000 women have had abortions in New York City in the last two and a half years, and most of them felt that they had every moral and legal right to do as they chose with the unborn child. What about the child's right? You know, when you talk about the woman's right, you're talking about one-third of the rights involved, the mother, the father, and the child. Somebody's morality, or lack of it, is certainly imposed upon the unborn children who are killed. While to many it may be strictly a legal question, to those who have had to face the issue firsthand, it is a very personal matter. Was there a point at which you almost decided to have an abortion? No, I really didn't um, think that it would be the right thing to do at any point. I never regretted it or felt any moral implications from it. I had the responsibility for creating human life. And there's no reason why I should blame it on anyone else. And I should take the responsibility for the consequences of my actions. I think the, <clears throat> the question of life of a child has to be dealt with in terms of, of life, not just life of a fetus. I have to say, after my experiences, that I am very much against abortion. The arguments will go on. Because perhaps more than any other issue in American life today, the abortion question is loaded with the emotional arguments of life, death, and morality. Not the kinds of issues a court can finally settle. Lem Tucker, ABC News, New York. Here is the historic recording. The actual oral arguments of Roe v. Wade, October 1972, 
in front of the Supreme Court. First in number 70, 18, a row against Wade. Mrs. Weddington, you may proceed whenever you're ready. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. We are once again before this court to ask relief against the continued enforcement of the Texas abortion statute and ask that you affirm the ruling of the three-judge court below, which held our statute unconstitutional for two reasons. The first, that it was vague, and the second, that it interfered with the Ninth Amendment right of a woman to determine whether or not she would continue or terminate a pregnancy. As you will recall, there are three, four, three plaintiffs and one intervenor involved here. The first plaintiff was Jane Rowe, an unmarried pregnant girl who had sought an abortion in the state of Texas and was denied it because of the Texas abortion statute, which provides an abortion is lawful only for the purpose of saving the life of the woman. In the original action, she was joined by a married couple, John and Mary Doe, Mrs. Doe had a medical condition. Her doctor had recommended first that she not get pregnant and second that she not take the pill. After this cause was instituted and after in fact the three judge court had been granted, those three plaintiffs were joined by an intervenor, Dr. Halford, who was at the time he intervened under a pending state criminal prosecution under the statute. He did not ask that his prosecution be, be uh, stopped by the court, but rather joined in the original request for a declaratory judgment and injunctive relief against future prosecutions. Uh, as a matter of fact, he has not, his prosecution has not been continued, uh, but the district attorney against whom we filed the suit has taken a position that because there was no injunction, he is still free to institute prosecutions there is a letter from his office in the appendix stating that he will continue prosecutions. And in fact, there have been a very limited number of prosecutions instituted in the state of Texas since the three-judge court entered its declaratory judgment. Prosecutions of doctors you're speaking of? Prosecutions of doctors, yes, sir. The problem that we face in Texas is that even though we were granted a declaratory judgment ruling the law unconstitutional, and even though we've been before this court once in the past, in Texas, women still are not able to receive abortions from licensed doctors because doctors still fear that they will be prosecuted under the statute. So if the declaratory judgment was any relief at all, it was an almost meaningful relief because the women of Texas still must either travel to other states if they are that sophisticated and can afford it, or they must resort to some other less, um, some other very undesirable alternatives. You uh, said meaningful. You meant meaningless, didn't you? Meaningless yes. Just, <laughs> uh, in fact, we pointed out in our supplemental brief filed here uh, that there have been something like 1,600 Texas women who have gone to New York City alone for abortions in the first nine months of 1971. 
In addition, I think the court would recognize there are many other women going to other parts of the country. One of the uh, objections that our opponents have raised is saying that this court is moot because, of course, the woman is no longer pregnant. Uh, it's been almost three years since we instituted the original action. And yet we can certainly show that it is a continuing problem to Texas women. Uh, there still are unwanted pregnancies. There are still women who, for various reasons, do not wish to continue the pregnancy, whether because of personal health considerations, whether because of their family situation, whether because of financial situations, education, working situations, some of the many things we discussed at the last hearing. Since the last hearing before this court, there have been a few cases decided that we wanted to draw the court's attention to and are covered in our supplemental brief. In addition, there is a supplemental brief filed by an amicus party, Harriet Pilpel, on behalf of Planned Parenthood of New York, that seeks to point out to the court at pages six and seven and subsequent pages some of the changing medical statistics available regarding the procedure of abortion. For example, that brief points out that the overall maternal death rate uh, from legal abortion in New York dropped to 3.7 per 100,000 abortions in the last half of 1971, and that that, in fact, is less than half the death, death rate associated with live delivery for women. Uh, that, in fact, the maternal mortality rate has decreased uh, by about two-thirds to a record low in New York in 1971. Um, that it, now, in 1971, New York recorded the lowest infant mortality rate ever in that state. Um, that during the first 18 months of 19, well, from July 1st, 1970 to December 31st, 1971, out-of-wedlock pregnancies have dropped by 14%. Uh, we now have other statistics coming from California and other states that show that not only has the overall birth rate declined, but the welfare birth rate has also declined accordingly. As to the women, this is their only forum. They are in a very unique situation for several reasons. First, because of the very nature of the interest involved. Their primary interest being the interest associated with the question of whether or not they will be forced by the state uh, to continue an unwanted pregnancy. In our original uh, brief, we alleged a number of constitutional grounds. The main one that we are relying on before this court are the Fifth, the Ninth, and the Fourteenth Amendments. There is a great body of precedent. Uh, certainly we cannot say that there is in the Constitution so stated the right to an abortion, but neither is there stated the right to travel or some of the other very basic rights that this court have held are under the United States Constitution. The court has in the past, for example, held that it is the right of the parents and of the individual to determine whether or not they will send their child to private school, whether or not their children will be taught foreign languages, whether or not they will have offspring, the Skinner case, whether the right to determine for themselves whom they will marry, the loving case, and even in, in Body versus Connecticut, the choice uh, saying that, the, that marriage itself is so important that the state cannot interfere with uh, termination of a marriage just because the woman is unable to pay the cost. Griswold, of course, is the primary case, holding that the state could not 
interfere in the question of whether or not a married couple would use birth control. And since then, the course of this court, of course, has held that the individual has the right to determine uh, whether they are married or single, whether they will use birth control. So there, there is a great body of cases decided in the past by this court in the areas of marriage, sex, contraception, procreation, childbearing, and education of children, which says that there are certain things that are so much a part of the individual concern that they should be left to the determination of the individual. One of the cases decided uh, since our last argument, December 13th, was the second Connecticut case, Abel versus Markle, uh, which uh, Judge uh, excuse me? Newman. Newman wrote the opinion, yes, thank you. Uh, and Judge Lombard concurred. Part of the language, in that case, uh, that three-judge court held the Connecticut statute, uh, a slightly revised statute for the second time to be unconstitutional. And part of the language of that case pointed out that no decision, and I'm quoting, of the Supreme Court has ever permitted anyone's constitutional right to be directly abridged to protect a state interest which is subject to such a variety of personal judgments. And certainly the amicus brief stacked before the court show the variety of personal judgments uh, that come to bear on this particular situation. To uphold such a statute, the court said, would be to permit the state to impose its view of the nature of a fetus upon those who have the constitutional right to base an important decision in their personal lives upon a different view. Again, this is a very special type case for the women because of the very nature of the injury involved. It is an irreparable injury. Once pregnancy has started, certainly this is not the kind of injury that can be later adjudicated. It is not the kind of injury that can later be compensated by some sort of monetary reward. These women who have now gone through pregnancy and the women who continue to be forced to go through pregnancy have certainly gone through something that is irreparable, that can never be changed for them. It is certainly great and it is certainly immediate. Uh, there is no other forum available to them. Uh, as we talked last time, uh, they are not subject in Texas to any kind of criminal prosecution, whether the woman performs self-abortion, whether she uh, goes to a doctor, finds someone who will perform it on her. She is guilty of no crime whatsoever, and yet the state tries to allege that its purpose in this statute was to protect the fetus. If that's true, the fact the woman is guilty of no crime uh, is not a reasonable kind of uh, it, it does not reasonably follow. Uh, this, the women are not able to have any kind of declaratory judgment in Texas because of our special declaratory judgment statutes in our concurring uh, criminal and civil courts, the two different lines of cases that we have. So the federal court was the only court to which the women had any kind of access, and it was to the federal courts they came, and it's the federal court, in my judgment, that should determine this case. It's a very unique kind of harm, certainly, that was done to them. Uh, even though there are many cases, uh, some very recent from this court, talking about uh, the problem of when a state may interfere, when there, or the federal judiciary may interfere when there is a pending state criminal prosecution. 
this case does come under the exceptions in that there is great, immediate, irreparable injury where there is no other forum. It is something that, as far as these women are concerned, can never be adjudicated in a criminal prosecution, much less in a single criminal prosecution. It certainly is, is an instance of a situation that is capable of repetition, yet evading review. The judiciary simply does not move fast enough for the case to be decided within the period of gestation, much less within the period within which an abortion would be medically safe for these women. The state has alleged, and its only alleged interest in this statute is the interest in protecting the life of the unborn. However, the state has not been able to point to any authority of any nature whatsoever that would demonstrate that this statute was in fact adopted for that purpose. We have some indication that other state statutes were adopted for the purpose of protecting the health of the woman. We have an 1880 case in Texas, uh, shortly after the 1854 statute was adopted, that states that the woman is the victim of the crime and is the only victim the court talks about. We have all the contradictions uh, in the statute and the way, uh, so many things that just don't make sense. If the, if the statute was adopted for that purpose, for example, why is the woman guilty of no crime? If the statute was adopted for that purpose, why is it that the penalty for abortion is determined by whether or not you have the woman's consent? Um, Regardless of the purpose for which the statute was originally enacted or the purpose which keeps it on the books in Texas today, you would agree, I suppose, that one of the important factors that has to be considered in this case is what rights, if any, does the unborn fetus have? That's correct. There have been two cases uh, decided since the December 13th argument that expressly hold that a fetus has no constitutional rights, one ber being Byrne uh, versus New York and the other being the McGee Women's Hospital cases. In both situations, uh, persons sought to bring that very question to the court. Does a fetus, in the, in the one instance, Byrne was a challenge to the New York revised statute, the other was a situation where a person sought to prevent McGee Women's Hospital from allowing further abortions to be done in that hospital. And in both cases, uh, it was held that the fetus had no constitutional rights. Uh, several of the briefs before this court would also argue that this court, in deciding the Vuich case, uh, which has allowed abortions to continue in the District of Columbia, certainly the court would not have made that kind of decision if it felt there were any ingrained rights of the fetus within the Constitution. Uh, there, have also, there is also, well, of course... Was it critical to your case that the uh, fetus not uh, be a person under the uh, due process clause? It seems to me that it is critical first that we prove this is a fundamental interest on the behalf of the woman, that it is a constitutional right. Well, and yes, second, how about the fetus? Okay, and second, that the state has no compelling state interest. Okay, and the state is alleging a compelling state interest. Well, yes, but I'm just asking you, under the, under the federal constitution, is the fetus a person for the purpose of the protection of the due process clause? All of the cases, the prior history of this statute, the common law history would indicate that it is not. The state has shown no uh, 
Well, what if a, would you lose your case if, a, if the fetus was a person? Then you would have a balancing of interest. Uh, well, you still you have anyway, don't you? Excuse me? You have anyway, don't you? You're going to be balancing the rights of the, of the mother against the rights of the fetus. It seems to me that you do not balance constitutional rights of one person against mere statutory rights of another. Uh, you, uh, you think uh, a, state, a state interest, if it's only a statutory interest or a constitutional interest under the state law, can never outweigh a federal constitutional right? I think it would seem to me that... So all the talk of compelling state interests is uh, beside the point. It can never be compelling enough. If a state could show that the fetus was a person under the 14th Amendment or under some other amendment or part of the Constitution, then you would have the situation of trying... Uh, you would have a state compelling interest which in some instances can outweigh a fundamental right. This is not the case in this particular situation. Do you make any distinction between the first month and the ninth month of gestation? Our statute does not. Do you, in your position in this case? We are asking in this case that the court declare the statute unconstitutional, the state having proved no compelling interest at all. There are some states that now have adopted time limits. Those have not yet been challenged, and perhaps that question will be before this court. Um, even those statutes, though, allow exceptions. Well, for New York, for example, says an abortion is lawful up to 24 weeks. But even after the 24 weeks, it is still lawful uh, where there's rape or incest, uh, where the mother's mental or physical health is involved. In other words, even after that period, it's not a uh, hard and fast cutoff. Then it's the weighing process that Mr. Justice White was referring to. Is that true? The legislature. Position? And in that situation engaged in the weighing process. And it seems to me that it has not yet been determined whether the state has the compelling interest to, to uphold even that kind of regulation, but that's really not before the court in this particular case. We have no time limit. Uh, there is no indication in Texas that any would be applied in any future date. You know, we just don't know that. But, Mrs. Weddington, you're... Um Attacking the statute on two grounds, are you not? Both That's vagueness correct. and the Ninth Amendment. Do you uh, place any greater weight on one argument as against the other? Our uh, Texas Court of Criminal Appeals in Thompson versus State. Uh, That's a recent case. Yes, uh, in November of Again, last off year. on vagueness. Yes. It, uh, mm -hmm. That particular case held that the Texas statute was not vague, citing Vuitch. It's my opinion that that reliance was misplaced, that in Vuitch, this court had before it the D.C. statute which allowed abortion for the purpose of saving the life or the health, and this court adopted the interpretation that health meant both mental and physical health. And it seemed to me the court's language in that case uh, talked a great deal about the fact that the doctor's judgment goes to saving the health of the woman, that that's the kind of judgment he is used to making. In Texas, that's not the judgment he's forced to make. The judgment in Texas is, is this necessary for the purpose of preserving the life of the woman? And the language of that statute has never been interpreted. That's not the kind of judgment that a doctor is accustomed or, or perhaps even able to make. Well, I'll go back to my question. Are you... Uh... I still continue the argument that the Texas case is vague. 
So you're relying on both? Yes, Your Honor, we are. Now, you referred a little bit to history, and let me ask you a question okay. uh, based on history. You're familiar with the Hippocratic Oath? I am. I think I, I may have missed it, but I find no reference to it in this, uh, in your brief or in the uh, voluminous briefs that we're overwhelmed with here. Do you have any comment about the Hippocratic Oath? I think two things could be said. Uh, the first would be that, that situations and understandings change. Uh, in this case, for example, we have before the court uh, a, a medical amicus brief that was joined by all the deans of the public medical schools in Texas. Uh, it was joined by numerous other professors of medicine. It was joined by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Of course, you know, there are other briefs on the other side joined by equally outstanding physicians. None but of tell me why you didn't discuss the Hippocratic Oath. Okay. I, I guess it was... Uh, okay. <laughs> In part because uh, the Hippocratic Oath, we discussed basically the constitutional protection we felt the woman to have. Uh, the Hippocratic Oath does not pertain to that. Second, we discussed the fact that the state had not established a compelling state interest. The Hippocratic Oath would not really pertain to that. And then we discussed the vagueness jurisdiction. It seemed to us that, 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 that the fact that uh, the medical profession at one time had adopted the Hippocratic Oath does not weigh upon the fundamental constitutional rights involved. Uh, it is a guide for physicians, but the outstanding organizations of the medical profession have in fact adopted a position that says the doctor and the patient should be able to make the decision for themselves in this kind of situation. Of course, it's the only definitive statement of ethics in the medical profession. I, I take it from what you just said that you're you didn't even footnote it because it's old. That's about really what you're saying. Well, I guess you, it is old, and, and not that it's out of date, but that it, it seemed to us that it was not pertinent to the argument we were making. Let me ask another question then. Uh, last June 29th, this court decided the capital punishment cases. Yes, sir. Do you feel that there is any inconsistency in the court's decision in those cases outlawing the death penalty with respect to convicted murderers and rapists at one end of lifespan and your position in this case at the other end of lifespan? I think had there been established that the fetus was a person under the 14th Amendment or under constitutional protection, then there might be a differentiation. In this case, there has never been established that the fetus is a person or that it's entitled to the 14th Amendment rights or the protection of the Constitution. It would be inconsistent to decide that after birth, various classifications of persons would be subject to the death penalty or not. But here we have a person, the woman, entitled to fundamental constitutional rights, as opposed to the fetus prior to birth, where there is no establishment of any kind of federal constitutional rights. Well, do I get from this, then, that your case depends primarily on the proposition that the fetus has no constitutional rights? It depends on saying that the woman has a fundamental constitutional right and that the state has not proved any compelling interest for regulation in the area. Even 
even if the court at some point determined the fetus to be entitled to constitutional protection, you would still get back into the weighing of one life against another. And that's, what it, that's what's involved in this case? <laughs> weighing one life against another? No, Your Honor. I said that would be what would be involved if the, the facts were different and the state could prove that there was a person for the constitutional right. Well, if, if it were established that an unborn fetus is a person within the protection of the 14th Amendment, you would have almost an impossible case here, would you I not? would have a very difficult case. You certainly would, because you'd have the same kind of thing. You'd, you'd have to say that uh, this would be the equivalent after a child was born, if uh, right. the mother thought it bothered her health having a child around, she, would, uh, she could have it killed. Right. Isn't that correct? That's correct. Could that Texas constitutionally, did you want to respond further to Justice uh, Stewart? Did you want to respond further to him? No, Your Honor. Could Texas constitutionally, in your view, uh, declare that by statute that uh, a fetus is a person for all constitutional purposes after the uh, third month of uh, gestation? I do not believe that the state legislature can determine the meaning of the federal constitution. It is up to this court to make that determination. Yes, but states have to the begin with could, statutes, don't they? The state cases. could obviously adopt that kind of statute, and then the question would have to be adjudicated as to whether for all purposes that statute is constitutional. We are not alleging that there cannot be some kind of protection, uh, for example, the property rights, which again are contingent on being, upon being born alive, but can be retroactive to the period prior to birth. But in this particular situation, we are alleging uh, that, th that this statute is unconstitutional. They have been recognized uh, in the period before birth uh, for purposes of injury claims. You put that, I take it, in the property category? In Texas, category? that is only when they are born alive. And the fact that there is a wrong, you know, the wrongful uh, conduct of another is not the same as in this situation. As to property rights, for example, there, there are even property rights that relate back to prior to conception. Children that are not yet conceived can later in inherit, uh, but that doesn't, that did not prevent this court in Griswold from holding people had the right to birth control. Mr. Flowers. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The lower court in Dallas held uh, the Texas abortion law unconstitutional primarily on the two grounds that has just been discussed. On the vagueness question and the rights of the mother under the Ninth Amendment. The thrust of the whole argument of the state of Texas is against the rights of the mother under the Ninth Amendment that it certainly is a balancing effect. There must be, or on the other side of the coin, Texas has no state. It is impossible for me to trace within my allocated time uh, the development of the fetus from the date of conception to the date of its birth. But it is the position of the state of Texas that upon conception, we have a human being, a person within the concept 
of the Constitution of the United States and that of Texas also. Now, how should we, how should that question be decided? Is it a legal question, a constitutional question, a medical question, a philosophical question, a religious question, or what is it? Your Honor, we, we feel that it could be best decided by a legislature in view of the fact that they can bring before it the medical testimony, the actual people who do the research. But we do you have... You think it's, that it's a, basically a medical question? Uh, uh, from a constitutional standpoint, no, sir. I think it's fairly squarely before this court. Uh, we don't envy the, uh, the court for having to make this decision. Do you know of any case anywhere that's uh, held that an unborn fetus is a person within the meaning of the 14th Amendment? No, sir. We can only go back to what the framers of our Constitution had in mind. Well, these weren't the framers who wrote the 14th Amendment that came along. No, sir. Uh, I understand, but the Fifth Amendment. Uh, under well, the Fifth part. Amendment, no one shall be deprived of a right to life, liberty, and property without the due process of law. Yes, but then the 14th Amendment defines person, and it defines person as somebody who's born, doesn't it? I'm not sure about no, that. Any person born or naturalized in the United States doesn't. I suppose that's not a definition of a person, but that's a definition of a citizen. Your Honor, it's our position that uh, the definition of a person is so basic, it's so fundamental, that it is uh, the framers of the Constitution uh, had not even uh, set out to define uh, we can only go to what the teachings at the time of the Constitution was framed. Uh, we have uh, numerous listings in the brief by uh, Mr. Joe Witherspoon, a professor at the University of Texas, that tries to trace back what was in the, their mind when they had the person concept, when they drew up the Constitution. He quoted... Blackstone in 1765, and he observed in his commentaries that life, this right is inherent by nature in every individual and exists even before the child is born. I submit to you that the Declaration of Independence we hold... Lord, when you quote Blackstone, is it not true that in Blackstone's time Abortion was not a felony. That, that's true, uh, Your Honor, but uh, what my point there was to see the thinking of the framers of the Constitution from the people they learned from and the general attitude of the time. Well, I, I think, I'm just wondering if there's a basic inconsistency there. And uh, let me go back to something else that you said. It, is it not true or is it true? that the medical profession itself is not in agreement as to when life begins. I think that's true, sir. Uh, but from a layman's standpoint, medically speaking, we would say that at the moment of conception from the chromosomes, every potential that anybody in this room has is present from the moment of conception. Well, then you're speaking of potential of life. Which, yes, sir. With which everyone can agree, perhaps. On the seventh day, uh, I think that the heart in some form starts beating. 
on the 20th day, uh, practically all the facilities are there that you and I have, Your Honor. Uh, I think you're, that... You're, uh, you're correct that the, uh, that the uh, fetus is a person. Then I don't suppose uh, you'd have a uh, the state would have great trouble permitting an abortion, wouldn't it? Yes, sir. And in any circumstance, it would. Yes, sir. To save the life of the mother or her health or anything else. Well, there would be yeah. the balancing of the two lives, and I think that. Uh, what would you choose? Uh, would you choose to kill the innocent one or what? Well, in this, in our statute, the state did choose that way, Your Honor. Well, in the protection of the mother. Well, could the state of Texas say that if it's for the benefit of the health of the wife, they can kill the husband? I'm sorry, I didn't understand your question. Could Texas say if it comes to a situation for the benefit of the health of the wife that the husband has to die, could they kill him? I wouldn't think so, sir. That's right. I wouldn't think so. Is there any statute in Texas that prohibits a doctor from performing any operation other than an abortion? I don't, I don't think so, sir. And there is uh, another thrust of our argument. If we declare, as the appellees in this case have asked this court to declare, that an embryo or a fetus is a mass of protoplasm similar to a tumor, then of course the state has no compelling interest whatsoever. But uh, there is no. The only operation that a doctor can possibly commit that will bring on a criminal penalty is an abortion. Yes. Why? As far as... Well, why don't you limit some other operations? Because this is the uh, only type of operation that would take another human life. Well, a brain operation could. Well, there again, that, that would be... Uh, I think that in, in every feat that a doctor performs, that he is constantly making this judgment. Well, if a doctor performs a brain operation and does it improperly, he could be guilty of manslaughter, couldn't he? I would think so, if he was negligent. Well, why couldn't you charge him with manslaughter if he commits an abortion? In effect, Your Honor, we did. In uh, the statute 1195, that has been very carefully avoided all throughout these proceedings is not attacked as unconstitutional for some reason. Uh, if you'll permit me to... Well, is it an issue here? No, sir. Uh, you asked a question about whether we had uh, 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 made manslaughter, uh, uh, abortion manslaughter. Uh, well, maybe the reason is, is why I have two statutes. Well, this was in context with, uh, this is 1195, they are attacking 1191 to 1196, but omitted uh, 1195. Here's what 1195 say, provides. Whoever shall, during the parturition of the mother, destroy the vitality or life in a child in a state of being born before actual birth and before actual birth, which child would have otherwise been born alive, which be, uh, shall be confined to the penitentiary for life or not less than five years. What does that statute mean? Sir? What does it mean? Uh, I would think that 
It's is it an offense to kill a child in the process of childbirth? Yes, right? sir. It would be uh, immediately before childbirth or, or right in the proximity of the child being born. Which is not an abortion. Which is not, would not be an abortion, yes, sir. You're correct, sir. It would be homicide. Gentlemen, we feel that the concept of a fetus being in the, within the concept of a person, within the framework of the United States Constitution and the Texas Constitution, is, is an extremely fundamental thing. Of course, if you're right about that, uh, you can sit down. You're, you've won your case. Your Honor. Except uh, insofar as maybe the Texas abortion law presently goes too far in allowing abortion. Yes, sir. That's exactly right. Uh, we feel that, that this is the only question, really, that this court has to answer. We have a... If, if uh, the fetus or the embryo was not a person, is that it? Yes, sir. I would say so. You mean, uh, you mean the state has no uh, interest that it, of its own that it can assert? Uh, and uh, Oh, we have other interests, Your Honor. Uh, preventing uh, uh, promiscuity, say. Maybe yes, this but is... Can't, your legislature, apparently, uh, or you're asserting that the state, uh, that your state law... Uh, wants to protect the uh, life of the fetus. Yes, sir. And under state law, uh, uh, there is some rights given, to, there are some rights given to the fetus. Yes, sir. And you are asserting those rights yes, uh, against the uh, right of the mother. Balancing against the Ninth Amendment rights. Or well, yeah, but that's wholly aside from whether or not the fetus is a person under the federal constitution. You can still assert those rights, whether the fetus is a person or not. Yes, sir. Does Texas have uh, traditional statutes on mutilation, making yes, it a criminal act, yes, so that there are other uh, surgical yes, procedures which could be criminal? That's right. They do. The man walked into a doctor's office and said, I want you to cut off my right arm uh, because That's right. it has mutilation, offended me. Castration. Yes, sir, I had forgotten about those, Your Honor. Statutes apply to doctors? I would assume so, sir. Anyone. Do you have any case that says so? No, sir. I would say that uh, there would have to be a culpability of mine uh, proven there, as in most of criminal cases. Your Honor, I'd like to call the attention of the court of that the unborn child, uh, if that this court has not been blind to the rights of the unborn child in the past. In uh, the Memorial case versus Anderson, a New Jersey Supreme Court case, uh, the court, this was a case where the pregnant woman had refused on religious grounds to undergo a blood transfusion and in order to save the child. Uh, the court held that the right of the child to live and uh, to be born was paramount over this pregnant woman's right of religion. 
I think that here is exactly what we're facing in this case, is the life of this unborn fetus paramount over the woman's right to determine whether or not she shall bear a child. In Glickman versus Cosgrove, it's a New Jersey Supreme Court case. It's a tort action instituted against the doctor as a result of his failure uh, to warn uh, the mother that she was suffering from German measles in order that she could terminate her pregnancy. The court recognized the life of the embryo and stated that it would have been easier for the mother and less expensive for the father. This alleged detriment cannot stand against the precedent of one single life. In Jones versus State, excuse me, Jones versus Jones, a New York Supreme Court uh, held that the unborn child was a patient uh, of the mother's obstetrician as well as the mother herself. In Jackson versus Indiana, this court zealously guarded the rights of a retarded child. Now, if we're going to extend the right of a child who has reached its potential, it cannot go on and grow. It cannot go on and grow mentally and, and achieve. Then how much more rights should we afford to a child who is, has all of the potential? of achieving. The Prince versus Commonwealth of Massachusetts case, this course was faced with the contention that the state statute uh, precluding uh, labor by a child in 10 years and distributing religious tracts was protected, that the child's right to grow up and to become educated and fully developed was paramount to these parents religious beliefs. This court has been diligent in protecting the rights of the minorities. And gentlemen, we say that this is a minority, a silent minority, the true silent minority. Who is speaking for these children? Where is the counsel for these unborn children whose life is being taken? Where is the safeguard of the right to trial by jury. Are we to place this power in the hands of a mother and a doctor? All of the constitutional rights, if this person has the person concept, what would keep a legislature under this grounds from deciding who else might or might not be a human being, or might not be a person. Well, generally speaking, I think you agree that up until now, the test has been whether or not somebody's been born or not. And that's the word used yes, in the 14th Amendment. Yes, sir. That's what would keep a legislature, I suppose, from classifying people who've been born as not persons. Your Honor, it seems to me that the physical act of being born, I'm not playing it down, I, uh, I know it's a... Uh, uh, oh very momentous incident, but what changes? Is it a non-human and changing by the act of birth into a human? Well, that's or been we, the theory up until now it, in the law. It, it, well, 
in other words, it has been the theory that, that we have deriving from non-human material a human being after conception. Well, Your Honor, uh, see, that's the reason I asked you at the beginning. What, uh, within what framework should this question be decided? Should it be a, a theological one yes. or a philosophical one or a medical one or are we confined here to dealing with... Uh, I think, Your Honor, that the court... Constitutional meaning of it. I wish I could answer that. I believe that the court must take these, uh, the medical research and apply it to our Constitution the best it can. I uh, said I'm without envy of, of uh, the burden that the court has. I think that possibly we have an opportunity to make one of the worst mistakes here that we've ever made. But there's no uh, medical the, testimony that backs up your statement that it goes from inception, is there? Only that... Uh, medical. Sir, in, in this case you're talking about... No, is there any medical testimony of any kind that says that a fetus is a person at the time of inception? Your Honor, I uh, would like to call the court's attention in answering that question, uh, what I feel to believe uh, uh, one of the better culminations of the medical research, and that was Senior Judge Campbell's dissenting opinion in the Doe versus Scott, which is very similar to the case we have before us. He goes in chronological order uh, what uh, the medical research has determined uh, from the chromosome structure at the time of in conception, what the potential is, down through each day of life until it's born. But I uh, understood you to say the state of Texas says it extends from the date of inception until the child is born. The date of conception until the day of, yes sir. And that's it? Yes sir. Now, you now quote me a judge. I want you to give me a medical, recognizable medical writing of any kind that says that at the time of conception that the fetus is a person. I do not believe that I could give that to you uh, without researching through the briefs that have been filed in this case, Your Honor. I'm Mr. not sure that I could give it to you. After Mr. Flowers, did yes. Judge Campbell rely on medical authorities in that statement you're summarizing? Yes, sir, he did. This case uh, was, uh, the court held there that, that really the problem could be answered on an extension of the uh, Griswold case. And uh, here's what my dissenting judge had to say about that, which we adopt, Your Honor. Said, uh, in citing Griswold, the majority concludes we cannot distinguish the interests asserted by the plaintiffs in this case from those asserted in Griswold. In other words, in, in their views, there is no distinction that can be made between prohibiting the use of contraceptives and prohibiting the destruction of fetal life, which, as explained above, may reasonably be construed to be a human life. I find this assertion incredible. Contraceptive prevents creation of new life. Abortion destroys existing life. Abortion, uh, contraceptives and abortion are as distinguishable as thoughts and dreams are 
distinguishable from a reality. Now, well, where are the medical authorities you told Mr. Justice Rehnquist he cited? Are they there? Yes, sir. He lists them day by day, uh, uh, just prior to this time, sir. But it's uh, quite lengthy. Where is that you're reading from? It's uh, uh, 321 Federal Supplement on page uh, 394, sir. And I, or 392 it begins, Your Honor. And I refer you to his uh, uh, medical uh, condensation because I read most of, uh, most of the comments that he has to make through, through the, uh, throughout, uh, these many, many briefs uh, that we have had submitted in this case and other cases. For instance, he starts off, uh, uh, we did, uh, see, as the Illinois legislature would have before us the following undisputed facts relating to fetal life. Seven weeks after conception, the fertilized egg develops into a well-proportioned small-scale baby and then goes from there on. Now, uh, I know he doesn't address himself, Your Honor, to the moment of conception. I didn't think so. Uh, uh, you're entirely right there. And, but I find no way that I know that any court or any legislature or any doctor anywhere can say that here is the dividing line. Here is not a life and here is a life after conception. Uh, perhaps it would be better left to our legislators. Uh, there they have the facilities to have some type of medical history brought before them. And the uh, opinion of the people who are being governed by this. Well, if you're right that an unborn fetus is a person, then you can't leave it to the legislature to play fast and loose with that, in dealing with that person. In other words, uh, if you're correct in your basic submission that an unborn fetus is a person, then abortion laws such as that uh, which New York has is grossly unconstitutional, isn't it? That's right. Allowing, yes. the, allowing yes. the killing of people. Yes. Of persons. Your Honor, the Massachusetts, I might point so you out. You can't leave this up to the legislature. There's a constitutional problem, isn't it? Well, if there would be any exceptions uh, within this. And the basic constitutional question initially is whether or not an unborn fetus is a person, yes. isn't it? And entitled to the constitutional protection. And that's critical to this case. Yes, it sir. It is. And we feel that uh, the treatment that the courts have given unborn children and dissent and distribution, property rights, tort laws, have all pointed out that they have, uh, in the past, have given credence to this uh, concept. Mr. Flowers, doesn't the fact that so many of the state abortion statutes do provide for exceptional situations in which abortion may be performed, and presumably these date back a great number of years, uh, following Mr. Justice Stewart's comment, suggest that the, that the absolute proposition that a fetus from the time of conception is a person just is at least against the weight of, of historical legal approach to the question. Yes, sir, I would think possibly that that would indicate that. Uh, however, 
Your Honor, in this whole field of abortion here, we have, uh, on the one hand, uh, uh, great clamoring for this liberalization of it. Perhaps this is good. Population explosion. We have these so many uh, uh, things that are arriving on the scene in the past few years that might have some effect on uh, 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 producing this type of legislature rather than facing the fact squarely. I don't think anyone has faced the fact in making a decision whether this is a life in a personal concept. Thank you. Mr. Flowers, uh, when was the first abortion statute adopted in your state? Your Honor, in 1854. Prior to 1854, what was the situation in Texas? I, I do not think it was an offense, Your Honor. So on your theory... I think it was silent. The state was silent on that. So on your theory, destruction of a person in the form of a fetus... Uh, was legal. Yes, sir. Uh, uh, well, at least the uh, legislature hadn't spoken on it, Your Honor. Well, it was legal. Yes, sir. Mr. Flowers, did Texas have an abortion statute on the books at the time, at least in the eyes of the North, it was readmitted to the Union after the Civil War? No, sir. The state was uh, admitted to the Union in 1845, Your Honor. Well, at the time that it was uh, passed muster with the uh, uh, when it was a republic? Well, my, my historical impression is that, that following the Civil War, Congress uh, went through the procedure, at any rate, of, of readmitting the states which had seceded and pa passing on their constitutional provisions and that sort of thing. Did Texas have an abortion statute at that time? Yes, sir. Uh, it was passed in 1854, Your Honor. You know, as a matter of historical fact uh, when most of these abortion statutes came on the books? I think it was, uh, most of them were in the uh, mid-1800s, Your Honor. In fact, the latter half of the 19th century. Yes. you know why they all came on at that time? No, sir, I, uh, I surely don't. Sorry. The uh, materials indicate that, uh, generally speaking, they were enacted to protect the health and lives of pregnant women because of the danger of operative procedures generally in that era of our history. I'm sure that was a great factor, Your Honor. Well, isn't it historically uh, pretty well accepted as a fact that in the early period of the history of this country, uh, there was general reliance upon religious discipline to preclude this uh, kind of uh, activity, abortions, and when uh, that didn't seem to uh, cover it, then the states began to enact <laughs> statutes, yes, sir. as uh, had been done in England. Also, uh, in the uh, exploration and the uh, uh, Indian days, if you wish, the frontier days, uh, I don't imagine that too many uh, abortions were, intentional abortions were created in this, uh, these United States. Uh, people were of such a necessity to develop the United States. Thank you, Your Honor. 
uh, Weddington, you have uh, four minutes left. Thank you, Your Honor. I think Mr. Flowers well made the point when he said that no one can say, here is the dividing line. Here is where life begins. Here is, life is here and life is not over here. In a situation where no one can prove where life begins, where no one can show that the Constitution was adopted, that it was meant to protect fetal life, in those situations where it is shown that that kind of decision is so fundamentally a part of individual life, of the family, of such fundamental impact on the person. Well, I, I gather your, your argument is, uh, is that a uh, uh, state may not protect uh, the life of the fetus uh, or prevent an abortion even at any time during pregnancy. At this right until the moment of birth. At this time, my point is that this particular statute is unconstitutional. Well, I understand that, uh, but uh, your argument is the way you stated that is that it wouldn't make any difference when the pregnancy that the state would have to prevent the abortion. It would still be unconstitutional. At this time, there is no indication to show that the Constitution would give any protection prior to birth. That is not before the court, and that is a question I think. Well, I don't know uh, whether that is statute, you're claiming the statute's void on its face. That's correct. Now, uh, is it possible the statute, uh, before you can declare the statute uh, void on its face, that uh, you have to say that uh, it's void no matter when in the pregnancy the abortion takes place? It seems to me in this situation the court is, excuse me, I, I must, would you ask the question again? Would the statute be void on its face if the state could prevent abortions at any time uh, after six months? I mean, if the state, in fact, did that? Well, let's assume that it's constitutional for the state to prevent abortions after six months. It would still be void on its face in this situation because it is overly broad. It it interferes in a at a time when the state has this no... This is a free speech case. The statute might be perfectly valid uh, in part and invalid. In areas it's where on its face, totally invalid. Well, it may, it may not apply to, to uh, it may not, <coughs> not prevent an abortion, no matter when the abortion takes place. My argument would first be that it's void on its face, and second, if the court finds it's not void on its face, that it certainly is void because it infringes upon the fundamental right at a time when the state can show no compelling interest early in pregnancy. What did this court uh, say about uh, voidness in the Vujic case? What did we say there? There you said the particular D.C. statute was not void for vagueness. It's a different statute. There was an interpretation of the meaning of the statute, and the court there said the doctor could work within that context and could tell what the statute meant. Well, then the only, isn't the only difference between uh, the Texas statute and the D.C. statute that the Texas statute does not have the health factor in? That's correct, which makes it much more difficult for the doctor to tell when it is constitutional. Well, then under which, unless the court was prepared to overrule it, modify it, the Texas statute would be valid if it was construed to include uh, abortions for the protection of health, treating life Including as broad enough to mental and physical. Health. But then the question is raised as to the right of privacy, which was not before the court in the Vujic case and is before the court in this particular situation. Uh, as to the Hippocratic Oath, it seems to me that that oath was adopted at a time when abortion was extremely dangerous. 
uh, to the health of the woman. And second, that the oath uh, is to protect life. And here the question is, what does life mean in this particular context? Uh, it, it's the sort of same vagueness that it seems to me that you're... Well, okay, life there could be slightly different because of the constitutional implications here. Well, it seems the to me that... Democratic oath went directly and specifically to abortion procedures. To providing abortion Whatever, patients. however life was That's correct. Uh, That's correct. defined. That's as to mutilation, uh, there it seems to me that the purpose of those statutes was to prevent the citizen from becoming a dependent or ward of the state, and also to ensure that its citizens would be available for service in the military. In this particular instance, the rationale works just the opposite. Uh, here, a woman, because of her pregnancy, is often not a productive member of society. She cannot work, she cannot hold a job, she's not eligible for welfare, she cannot get unemployment compensation. And furthermore, in fact, the pregnancy may produce a child who will become a ward of the state. We do not object to the cases, uh, such as the transfusion case, where there is a decision already made by the woman that she desires to carry the pregnancy to term. And when that decision is made, that the child should be given every opportunity to come into life a healthy person. We do not believe that that necessitates the conclusion that, therefore, under the Constitution, prior to birth, a person under the 14th Amendment would exist. There, this case, this court, is faced with a situation where there have been 14 three-judge courts that have ruled on the constitutionality of abortion statutes. Nine courts have favored the woman, five have gone against her. Twenty-five judges have favored the woman, seventeen have gone against her. Nine circuit judges have favored the woman, five have gone against her. Sixteen district court judges have favored the woman, ten have gone against her. No one is more keenly aware of the gravity of the issues or the moral implications of this case, but it is a case that must be decided on the Constitution. We do not disagree that there is a progression of fetal development. It is the conclusion to be drawn from that upon which we disagree. We are not here to advocate abortion. We do not ask this court to rule that abortion is good or desirable in any particular situation. We are here to advocate that the decision as to whether or not a particular woman will continue to carry or will terminate a pregnancy is a decision that should be made by that individual, that in fact she has a constitutional right to make that decision for herself and that the state has shown no interest in interfering with that decision. Our supplemental brief on page 14 points out that the brief of the opposition can't quite decide when life does begin. At one point they suggest it's when there's implantation. A few pages later they suggest it's with conception. But any doctor, I suppose, you would say, uh, may uh, refuse her. Certainly, Your Honor, he may. He may refuse any kind of medical procedure whatsoever. Uh, but the state Here it's the question of whether or not the state, by the statute, will force the woman to continue. <coughs> The woman should be given that freedom, just as the doctor has the freedom to decide what procedures he will carry out and what he will refuse to his patients. Could you be sure that I get your uh, argument okay. in focus? I, I take it from your recent remarks that uh, you are urging upon us abortion on demand of the woman alone, not am, in conjunction with her physician. I am urging that in this particular context, this statute is unconstitutional that in the Baird versus Eisenstadt case, this court said if the right of privacy is to mean anything, it is the right of the individual, whether married or single, 
to make determinations for themselves. It seems to me that you cannot say this is a woman of this particular doctor and this particular woman. It is, it is, it seems to me. Uh, well, doesn't it follow from that then that a woman can come into a doctor's office and say, I want an abortion? And he can say, I'm sorry, I don't perform them. And then what does she do? She goes elsewhere if she so chooses, if she stays with that. You know, it's, that's an impossible question. Uh, certainly, she, I don't think the state could say the first doctor a woman goes to, she'll make that determination and she cannot go elsewhere. Your time is, okay. uh, is up now, Mrs. Thank Weddington. You. Thank you, Mrs. Weddington. Thank you, Mr. Flowers. The case is submitted.